Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. All right, so let me just briefly introduce Dr. Reichstein. We haven't heard a whole lot about him, so let me tell you a little more about him. Um, Dr. Reichstein is from Tennessee Retina, like you guys know, and he is a graduate of the world's premier ocular oncology fellowship at Wills Eye Hospital, where he studied under Drs. Jerry and Carol Shields. Um, his interests include the diagnosis and management of patients with all types of, ophthalm- of ophthalmic tumors, including uveal melanoma or nevus, um, retinoblastoma, vitreoretinal, and choroidal lymphoma. So let's welcome Dr. Reichstein to the stage. Thank you for being here. I'm going to take a seat over here and just hang out. Danae, thanks so much for uh, that introduction. Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, This has turned out to be such a fantastic turnout of people, such a fantastic group of physicians. And my thanks uh, go out to um, Dr. John Pino, who was uh, in the other track this morning. My thanks go out to Dr. Terry Watson, who is still in the other track right now. Um, and anyone who feels like they want to run over to the other track to see Dr. Terry Watson um, should feel free. I'm not going uh, to take attendance. But we are going to talk about um, your eye, what, what your eye is going to look like after um, plaque brachytherapy, and really what, what we're trying to do when it comes to taking care of these eyes, okay? So let's start um, just by talking about a little bit of the anatomy just so we're all in the exact same place, okay? Uh, Light comes in through the front part of the eye. Do I have a pointer? Uh, I do, okay. Light comes in through the front part of the eye that's called the cornea, all right? Gets focused by the lens, hits the retina back here, all right? Everything that the retina accumulates goes out the back through the optic nerve towards uh, the brain. Then your brain takes those um, images and turns them into something that you can understand, okay? What we're looking at when it comes to uveal melanoma is this layer of tissue here, all right? Where it's associated with the iris in the front, the ciliary body, and the choroid, all right? These are vascular tissues that have um, pigmented cells in them. And those pigmented cells can grow into nevi in the smaller cases or melanoma uh, in the next case, all right? And you can get melanoma in any one of those tissues. The, and what we're doing when we make a plaque is designing a device that is itself radioactive, all right? And it has the radioactive seeds on the inside, okay? The outside is made of gold, 
Why is it made of gold? Because gold stops radiation really, really well, all right? And so, if you put radiation just on one side and gold on the other, radiation only goes in one direction, okay? And that direction is into the eye, all right? Anyone, by the way, should stop me and ask me, because I want everyone to really understand what we're talking about, okay? And Scott did a really fantastic job of um, talking to us a little bit about the kinetics of how radiation works when it comes to a plaque, so we're not gonna go through it too much, but this is now really becoming the standard of care, where we uh, image the tumor in multiple different ways, use those images, and come up with a compilation together that we can take and come up with a design for a plaque, all right? That plaque then sits on the eye, gets sutured. We have a diagram of where to put those sutures. We also have a diagram of just how much radiation is going to go into the tumor, which is down here, and then to the rest of the eye. And what I want everyone to realize is that every tumor is going to be different, okay? The amount of radiation that your tumor might have gotten is gonna be different than the person who's sitting next to you, all right? Consequently, the amount of radiation that your other structures got is gonna be entirely different. So what we see as a result in your eye is gonna be entirely dependent on what you and your tumor bring to the table, okay? And it's nearly impossible for us to predict exactly what your radiation complications are gonna be or how your tumor is going to respond because everyone is a little bit different, okay? So, but what are our primary goals? So the first, um, reduce our risk of metastasis, okay? Next, we wanna try as hard as we possibly can to keep the natural eye comfortable and in your head, okay? And then our third goal, never to be sacrificed for the first two goals, is preserve as much vision as we possibly can, all right, in that eye. So we're going to go through some examples of where it worked really, really great. And I'm thankful that it worked out really, really great. But also some examples of where we learned that it doesn't always work out exactly the way we want it to, okay? But um, we came up with ways to work around the initial findings of how it didn't work exactly the way we wanted to, okay? So this is a young woman, all right? In general, how you do after radiation is a little bit of a function of how healthy you are, all right? Younger people, active people, people who don't have other medical things going on, tend to do a lot better than people who have other um, medical comorbidities, okay? This young woman was otherwise healthy. Her nasal tumor got radiated, okay? A year after treatment, she had exactly what we want to see, okay? Which is a halo of radiation damage around a tumor that's much, much smaller. Okay, and not too long um, after um, I started seeing her and she, and she was doing really well and we followed her after years and this is how she looked five years after the tumor. Tumor looks, or five years after radiation. Tumor looks great and she's just barely 
having the start of some radiation retinopathy. We can see, I don't know if you guys can see it, but there's just the teeniest, tiniest little hemorrhage. That's radiation retinopathy. All right, so what does radiation retinopathy mean? First, let's back up a little bit, all right? Radiation, in general, what it does is it kills um, growing tissue in two different ways. One is it can literally explode, okay, uh, cells, all right? And then the next is it causes radiation damage to the DNA of actively dividing cells, okay? In your eyes, there are very few actively dividing cells. Those are limited, really, to, it's called the posterior capsule or the lens. But then inside the eye, near the retina, are all the blood vessels that are constantly turning over, okay? And those blood vessels have these, called, they're called endothelial cells, all right? The endothelial cells of your smallest blood vessels, the capillaries, are the ones that turn over the most. Okay, and so initially, you see the radiation in this cartoon, you get a little bit of an outpouching of a blood vessel, that outpouching grows a little bit worse. Consequently, after some time, that outpouching uh, dies completely, you get blood vessels leaking out, all right, and that's where the hemorrhages start. And that's how we know that radiation retinopathy is starting, okay? This is another example of um, another uh, middle-aged woman with a small-ish tumor. Again, the smaller the tumor, uh, the more likely you're going to do okay with radiation retinopathy early on. All right? We followed her for a while. This is immediately after treatment. There was a time when I was treating everyone with local um, laser, um, sort of right after radiation in an attempt to reduce some radiation damage. I stopped doing that when I realized that it didn't really do all that much, it didn't really change anything, so I stopped doing it. But the, she did eventually start um, developing some radiation damage, okay? Radiation retinopathy. When she developed radiation retinopathy, because the tumor was so close to the center of the vision, right, we started seeing some change in her vision, all right? And what we use to monitor these changes is uh, images called optical coherence tomography. If you've been to the eye doctor at all, you're gonna see your retina in optical coherence tomography a bazillion times, all right? You'll be able to look at your own ones as you watch them over time and see how it's changing, okay? And these are good examples of eyes that have been radiated versus the fellow eye that hasn't been radiated at all. And these are a bunch of different examples of what the very center of your vision is going to look like right after radiation, okay? Uh, or maybe a year later or so, okay? Normal eye, here's an eye with some damage right in the inner retina, here's damage throughout the retina, this is very significant damage, this is a subretinal, uh, this is a detachment of the retina, we'll talk a little bit about that later, okay? What we know is that radiation damage, radiation retinopathy, appears to be related to the presence of a chemical called vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, right? 
And what this chemical does is it causes blood vessels to leak abnormally, and then in the, and if there's very significant damage, is that they start to grow abnormally as a secondary event, okay? And they can grow in all sorts of different places, okay? And so over time, and oh, by the way, these are the same treat, these are the same chemicals that we see in other diseases that affect the eye, especially vascular. Um, so diabetic retinopathy, vein occlusions, right? All of these kind of end up with the same chemicals in the eye and they get treated very similarly. And there are multiple treatments that are now available, right? Where we can inject your eye and reduce that one chemical, vascular endothelial growth factor. Some of you may get ranibizumab or Lucentis. Some of you may get Bevacizumab or Avastin. Some of you may get Aflibercept or Ilea, okay? All of these treatments to various degrees will target VEGF and can take it out of the equation so that your eye has a chance to heal, okay? So back to our patient. This is, some, this is someone who developed radiation retinopathy a couple years after her radiation. She started getting treated uh, regularly. She's been very dedicated to treatment. And um, years later, she's still 2030, even though the tumor was right in her macula. Okay? That's a win for me, I think, because that's someone who's maintained a really uh, significant amount of vision despite um, a tumor that was really close to her uh, macula. This is a uh, patient with a, we call it a peripapillary tumor, okay? The papilla is another way to say the top of your optic nerves, okay? The optic nerve is connected to the, between the eye and the brain. The papilla is the part that we can see if we look inside the eye. So peripapillary, meaning around the optic nerve head. These patients are at high risk for radiation damage, right? Because the tumor is right there. This is how she looked a year after treatment. And I'll say, the tumor looks great, okay? We have a radiation halo around the tumor. The tumor no longer looks like, I mean, you're gonna have to trust me a little bit on how it looks, but the, the tumor no longer looks like it's active, okay? But what we like to see is that there's radiation damage all the way around it, okay? Indicating that radiation got where it wanted to be. Right in the center, she's starting to develop hemorrhages right in the middle of her vision, okay? In a place called the fovea. This patient didn't like the idea of injections in her eye, which I get. But then we lost her for follow-up, okay? And a couple years later, things are much, much worse. And I've never been able to get her back from 2400 to a usable um, vision. Okay, and that's, to me, it's kind of a win, but it's also kind of a loss, right? Because we've gotten the tumor under control, but it's someone I probably could have kept vision in if I had just been, I don't know, if I had figured out how to tell her about the importance of that. You win some, lose some. Okay, this is how she looks um, now five years after treatment. She's been dedicated to therapy since then. And we've been able to maintain some vision, but she's gotten uh, some optic nerve pallor. Um, she's developed glaucoma in the eye, um, but we're keeping her stable.
Um, this is a gentleman from Alabama. Weird things come from Alabama. All right. This is some. This is something that I've learned. Roll Tide, but weird things happen when you come from Alabama. Okay. The um, this is a gentleman who uh, had another uh, peripapillary melanoma and was um, treated. Um, about six months after treatment, her t his tumor looks fantastic. Okay, but he does start to have some radiation damage. You can see the vessels that should be there um, have started to kind of melt away, right, as a result of the radiation. And then a year later, you can see this bunch of hemorrhages and white stuff, okay? That's coming directly from his optic nerve, and this is the classic example of radiation optic neuropathy, okay? Radiation damage to the optic nerve itself. What I've learned, um, and we haven't written about this, is my own sort of personal practice, giving patients both steroids and an anti-VEGF agent at the same time and then keeping that up uh, can be very, very effective for radiation optic neuropathy. And this is how he looks um, now four years after treatment. We've been able to keep him 2040. Again, it's another win, right? You take them, but again, you win some and you lose some, okay? Um, this is a young woman, right, who um, is com very healthy under normal circumstances, um, should do very, very well after radiation, except for the fact that her tumor surrounds the optic nerve, okay? Peter talked a little bit about um, why sometimes patients with um, circumpapillary, it goes all the way around the optic nerve. Circumpapillary tumors might want to get proton therapy. I treat um, circumpapillary and peripapillary tumors with plaques all the time, knowing, though, that these patients are not going to do well from a vision standpoint, okay? And um, this, oh, by the way, we were talking about getting uh, biopsies at the time of, of plaque. I don't photograph a lot of people a month after, um, after their tumor, but if you were ever wondering what a biopsy site looks like, this is what it looks like right after the tumor. There's really not that much uh, hemorrhage that's associated with the, with the biopsy for genetic testing. We can get a lot of information from a very, very small needle. Um, but this is how she looked uh, six months after treatment. Again, we can see that the, there's a really good sort of halo of radiation damage around the tumor, okay? But not long after treatment, six months is actually pretty short in the time frame, she's starting to develop all this uh, optic nerve damage. And um, she became a light perception vision only within only a year. So we did what we can, okay, in situations like that, where we're trying to prevent something called neovascular glaucoma or neovascularization of the iris. We gave her um, laser uh, in uh, sort of areas of the um, retina that she didn't need in order to prevent that. This is an example of this is sort of a cartoon of what I mean by neovascularization of the iris or neovascularization neovascular glaucoma. In the presence of that chemical vascular endothelial growth factor, okay, VEGF, you can get blood vessel growth anywhere within the eye, okay? 
growth of bad blood vessels anywhere. One of those places that the, that the blood vessels like to grow is in the iris and in the angle of the eye. The angle of the eye is here, okay? And that's where fluid gets drained out of the eye. When you start growing blood vessels there, fluid no longer is able to drain. The pressure goes up, okay? And it becomes uh, enormously painful. And this sometimes ends up with us having to lose the eye. In her case, we haven't had to do that. But I think we just sort of got lucky. We treated her early with a lot of laser. She kept her eye, and she's still comfortable. This is another um, uh, patient who um, had a uh, whitish um, melanoma. Melanoma comes in all shapes and sizes, okay? Um, he underwent plaque brachytherapy, but not too long after plaque brachytherapy, and this is how he looked after plaque brachytherapy, just showing you that it worked. Not too long after treatment, I was a little concerned about the possibility of regrowth. Okay, we'll talk a little bit about um, endoresection when we talk about new advances in the treatment uh, of melanoma. But one thing I've personally used a lot is the actual resection of the tumor from inside the eye. Okay, he still had radiation damage and still gets injected monthly, but having removed that tumor, um, despite the possibility of a uh, recurrence in the eye, he's um, maintained very, very useful vision. Now we get into some larger tumors, okay? Larger tumors tend to be associated with something that looks a little bit like this, okay? It's called a retinal detachment, okay? This cartoon is ridiculous, but can um, give us an idea of why retinas detach, okay? There are three reasons. One is you get a tear in the retina, okay? A tear in the retina allows fluid from the middle of the eye, okay, through that tear under the retina, and then the retina gets forced up, all right? The next is something called a tractional retinal detachment, where something from the inside of the eye is growing on the surface of the retina, grabs the retina, and yanks it up, okay? The classic example of this is a diabetic retinal detachment, okay? The most uh, applicable type of retinal detachment in this room is something called a serous detachment or an exudative retinal detachment. In this case, the tumor makes fluid, okay, and the fluid gets pushed up, all right, and the fluid then pushes up the retina, and it can accumulate very significantly, especially towards the bottom of the eye, all right, which is down here. After treatment, his retinal detachment went away. He got some laser. We followed him for a while. He started developing uh, radiation retinopathy and radiation optic neuropathy. But after a little while, the tumor started to grow. Okay? And if you look down at the bottom of the slide, you can sort of see where things are a little bit out of focus. 
that was a recurrence of the patient's retinal detachment, which had, been, uh, which had gone away again. I tried to biopsy and laser him and see if I can get that retinal detachment to go away. Ultimately, in this case, I had to put on another plaque. It doesn't happen that often that we have to re-irradiate somebody, but we did. And when you do that, you sacrifice very significant vision. You know that two times the radiation is going to cause two times the damage, okay? Um, this is how he's done. His eye is still comfortable, but he has really no vision in that eye. Um, this is a lady who uh, had a plaque for this um, tumor that was uh, superior to her optic nerve. Um, and for a while, she did very well. Um, but we watch everybody. We watch everybody very, very closely because we want to make sure that they're doing well, right? And one of the things that we're looking for is recurrence, all right? And what I was worried about was this area right in the center, okay? If you don't trust me just by looking at it, you can trust the ultrasound, all right? On ultrasound, right after her, um, right after her plaque, the tumor um, was pretty small. This is how she was a year later, and it demonstrated significant growth. And in this case, I was able to save the eye by resecting the tumor, all right? Didn't, if I can, I prefer this technique because um, if you radiate twice, you're gonna get twice the radiation damage. Um, sometimes the um, retinal detachment that's associated with the tumor is so big that, and this is how it looks like on ultrasound. Again, this lady's from Alabama and weird stuff comes from Alabama. I've known uh, to keep my uh, feelers out and my antennae raised when patients come from Alabama. This is um, a retinal detachment, okay? This is the tumor. You can see how much more retina is attached despite the fact that the tumor is not that big. She underwent um, a vitrectomy and then a retinal reattachment and oil placement, okay? after we radiated her, and in her case, we were actually able to save um, her vision despite the fact that a lot of her retina was um, detached. Um, this is my last case. Uh, this is an example of another inferior tumor, and she did very well right after radiation. We followed her for a while. She started to develop radiation optic neuropathy, and she hated injections, hated them, okay? did not want to sit still, that kind of made me afraid, and so I kind of said, all right, we'll just not do them, okay? She left for a while, and she developed very significant radiation damage. Not too long after that, she developed uh, a hemorrhage inside the eye as a result of significant radiation damage, a very severe cataract, and pain. In this case, she did develop neovascular glaucoma, and in her case, the only thing we could do was remove the eye. So, in summary, we discussed some relevant anatomy, reviewed where melanoma can occur. We discussed our goals of therapy. First, reduce the risk of metastasis. Second, keep the eye comfortable as much as we can and keep it in the patient's head. Third, uh, preserve as much vision as we possibly can. Reviewed the complications of radiotherapy, examined some cases where radiotherapy has gone well, 
examined some cases where we've got really profound vision loss. We've discussed some cases of recurrence. Luckily, these don't happen that often, but we can manage them if they do happen. Examine a case of I lost. And I thank you so much for your attention. I'm very glad to take any questions. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Eckstein. That was extremely informative. Um, I do have a couple questions, and as we have Lauren walk around the room and anyone uh, virtually who has questions, feel free to send those in. We do have some time for questions. We'd be happy to take those. Um, I have a couple that I had written down, just listening to your presentation, if we want to start there, and then I will pull the ones from, from the audience. Um, so my question is, you mentioned doing the, um, you mentioned doing the, the, the uh, management of the retinopathy, and so in, are there any cases where somebody has radiation retinopathy that maybe, like you said, is causing vision change or deterioration of vision that previously wasn't there? They do, say, Avastin or some of these other shots that you mentioned, the steroid treatments, the things to manage it. Does the vision return, or are you left with the vision that you have experienced damage to that point? So it's a good question. The question was, um, the question was, are you able to actually get vision back, or are you really just preserving the vision that you have at the time that you started to develop radiation damage? And the answer is, it's very case dependent. Um, it depends a lot on what uh, what tumor was there to begin with, right? If it was a very large macular tumor, the chances of us preserving, of us getting a lot of vision back is low, all right? And in, the, in cases like that, preservation of the eye and preservation of the vision that you have, I think is really important. On the contrast, if the tumor is really not in the macula, if it's not surrounding the optic nerve, I think there's a really good chance that we might get a lot of vision back, but you gotta be dedicated to therapy. And you know what we know about radiation retinopathy is that there's more damage to the blood vessels from radiation than there is in any other vascular disease in the eye, okay? So you need more treatment than any other um, patient who might get injections in their eye and might be in the office for another reason. A lot of people don't get that. And, and unfortunately, if you're not dedicated to it, you tend to lose the advances that we make pretty quickly. Okay, that, um, that helps. Um, this question is a little bit, I don't think I've ever heard this phrase this way, but I feel like this is a good question to ask. Um, it's somebody asking, is it possible for the tumor to break down to like several smaller pieces after plaque therapy and to then have those smaller pieces of the, the dead tumor travel to other areas of the body? Is that ever possible? Um, the answer is probably not. I take that back. Anytime I say that there's, um, that there's no chance of something happening, I see it happen like a month or two later, okay? But, the, but that being said, um, I've never seen a tumor get like exploded as a result of radiation okay, and then break off and then go somewhere else as a result of radiation. Um, and so I don't really worry about that possibility. I think about it, though, um, when we uh, biopsy the patient initially, you know, is there a risk of um, breaking off pieces uh, and then having those seed elsewhere? Luckily, you know, 
biopsies have been done by themselves and with radiation so often that we know that it's really, really safe to do. So um, the answer is maybe, but I think probably not. Okay. Um, so I'm not sure where this one came from. Um, there were two questions on this side, and they were handwritten. So if you wrote on both sides of the paper and I start to read, tell me if I'm reading the wrong one. Um, so on, the, on one side, it says, when appropriate due to a patient's extreme anxiety, can the patient not, uh, can, 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 uh, can the patient not be pre-medicated or given sedation? Um, but like, do you guys find that helpful as you're treating the eye? Like, are some patients, do they do better? And how do you kind of figure out who's going to do better with or medication to sedate them versus um, going like full under anesthesia, I think is the question. Yeah. So the question is, Here, so can we, sorry, can we run a mic to you so that you can clarify? I don't think that I'm understanding what you wrote. Yeah, let, yeah, let me just good. see. Let me just see if I if I understand your question. Are are there measures that sometimes we take to reduce the anxiety of injections, and so that we achieve the goal of getting of getting the injection into your eye, right? Eventually, eventually you might not need it, right? The answer is, and Scott if you want to chime in here, or I don't know if Peter's still in the room, um, if, there are, if there are people who um, we would prescribe like anti-anxiety medications for ahead of injections in order to do that safely in the office, I literally only have one patient that I do that for. Um, and the reason uh, I am hesitant to do it is because um, I find that giving somebody a very controlled substance in a non-controlled environment where that I don't have a lot of say over what happens with that medication um, can, can, lead, can lead to bad things happening, all right? And so if that's the case, then the damage that I can do from an injection that goes badly I think is probably worth is probably worth just leaving it alone, right? Yes. So. So um, I think this gets back to what Dr. Sanger was saying this morning, right? The things that you can control end up being um, a very significant, focusing on the things that you can control end up being a very significant way to reduce anxiety, okay? One of the ways that you can control that experience, right, is by telling us what works best for you um, when it comes to numbing up your eye. Right, and if we have like a like an informed, you know, experience and informed conversation about what works for you, I think that's going to make it better for everybody, right? And so, and so, yeah. So if you can focus on that, and if you think that really helps, more power to you. We'll just do it the way that you like it. I will. Well, do I always give the patient that option? The. <laughs> Yeah, like the two, the two different I mean, options for numbing. No, I don't usually, I don't usually go through, you know, the possibilities for numbing ahead of time, 
okay? Maybe it sounds like I probably should. But the, um, but the I, I have a system that, you know, seems to work pretty well, and so I tend to stick with that. But if, um, if it doesn't go very well, I have no doubt that on the next patient, on the patient's next visit, they're going to tell me that it didn't go well. And they're, and in that case, we'll say like, well, let's try something different. In which case, the perfectly reasonable for us to discuss all of the possibilities for numbing up the eye to make the experience better. Well, and it, so basically, it sounds like the most important thing here is be communicative with your doctors, right? If, you, if your doctor doesn't know you're uncomfortable having these numbing shots and you just go into it with intense anxiety and you never communicate that, they don't know how to help you. So the more that you can communicate with your physician, the more that they can take steps to do different things, try something different, um, make a new you know, plan B or, or different options. Absolutely. And I would say the staff um, can, really make a, can really make a difference in that, in that situation too, right? Because sometimes the patient's much more comfortable talking to my staff than they are talking to me, which is fine, right? And, um, and what I've learned is that if I can keep the staff um, consistent, the people who see you know, my most complicated patients consistent, they get comfortable with them and then they will tell them things that sometimes they may not bring up with me in my, you know, three or five minute visit. Okay, and that's such a good point too is, and this is, this is a, just an important thing for us to remember as patients is that he's one doctor. Your ocular oncologist, there's what, maybe 50 of you guys in the States, maybe roughly 50. Um, there's hopefully more being trained, but there's a very small number of them. We know this because we have to travel to get treatment and that's very hard. But to be familiar with all of the staff that you go see regularly to start requesting, if they're not giving you the same person, request the people you're comfortable with. This is part of patient advocacy where you advocate for yourself and you say, this is what I'm comfortable with, this is what I'm not. And you clearly communicate that to all the staff, not just the doctor, because the doctor is just one person and, and they, can't, they can't handle everything. That's why they have their staff, their nurses, their support people. All of those people all play a critical role in this team. Um, like at Tennessee Retina or wherever you're treated, they're a team and the team works together very well. Um, so this question is a, just a really logistical question. Um, how long can you maintain having these shots to manage radiation retinopathy? I mean, forever? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, P, I mean, Peter, how long have you been injecting somebody for radiation? Is it, do you have a patient that you've injected What's the longest you've injected somebody for radiation retinopathy? Oh, yeah, hold on. Let's get you a mic. Hold on. So start over so we can hear you. Good. Okay. I, my wife always says, I, I say the long and short of it, but I always give the long of it, not the short of it. <laughs> but I have a gal who was a, you'd think she would have good karma because she assisted with eye surgery her whole career. She got macular degeneration. She was one of the first patients to get Avastin, and she's literally had shots in both eyes about every month. We've tried to wean her off for 17 years, and she still wins at poker. So she seemed pretty well. So I agree with you. I don't think there's any limit to it. The needles, especially like a 32-gauge needle, almost <clears throat> excuse me, separates the tissue rather than cuts it. So it pushes aside the fibers. You get the drug in, pulls it out. It's astonishing to me. There's going to be other options, hopefully longer-acting drugs down the road. Um, there's implants, gene therapy. Stay tuned. A lot of stuff coming our way. But for right now, 
shots are great, and I would agree with you, indefinite. Scott, how about you? How, what's, the, what's the longest you've treated somebody for either radiation retinopathy or otherwise? Yeah, certainly there's no limit in terms of uh, the duration of therapy, you know, for the reasons Peter mentioned. Um, what happens in radiation retinopathy the, is that the vision loss is multifactorial. Um, so um, it, macular edema, which is swelling in the retina, is readily correctable vision loss, or reversible vision loss from the injections. But atrophy or death of tissue or thinning of the retina is irreversible damage. And you can get atrophy from either, you know, the, the direct toxicity of the radiation or from untreated or undertreated macular edema. And I think there comes a point in the arc of uh, the patient journey for a lot of patients who've been treated with radiation um, where there may still be macular edema that we can make go away with injections, but their vision may not improve because of the atrophy. So I think when we get to that point where drying the retina no longer improves vision, um, I tend to be a little bit um, more conservative in terms of not necessarily continuing injections if they're not having a positive impact on the patient's vision. But I don't think that there's any... Um, you know, limit to the number of injections you can get. And I think Scott just brought, you know, what is, what is actually a really good point, which is that when you start getting to the point of diminishing returns, by then, you're really going to know the patient pretty well, right? And that, that patient's probably seen you 20, 30, 50 times. And it's okay for, for you as the patient to bring it up and say, like, I don't know if this is really helping all that much anymore. In which case, having a conversation about stopping injections or, uh, or limiting them a little bit is completely reasonable. Okay. Um, so just to, I guess, kind of clarify, um, I feel like I was told one answer, but I'm curious what your guys' answer is. Um, does radiation retinopathy after proton beam therapy or plaque radiation, does it always occur? I mean, again, this gets back to the, you know, if, if I say the answer, if I say it happens to everybody, then next month I'm going to see somebody that doesn't have it. But the, but the answer is, my feeling is that, and, and other people may feel that I'm wrong, if you don't have some evidence of radiation retinopathy or some evidence of radiation optic neuropathy, you probably didn't radiate it all that well. Right. That was kind of my thing. And, you probably didn't get enough. <laughs> and, um, and, and unfortunately, I've seen that in, in, in some people who um, probably needed more radiation and the tumor got left alone for a while and, and then ended up with me. And, and it's a tough conversation to have. So I would say it's, sometimes it can be a reassuring sign to see that there is some retinopathy because it means you did your job. Okay. Um, this is a, a question about like cotton wool spots in the vision. Is that ever something you have people explain or experience where they're maybe seeing radiation, radiation anopathy that's resulting in this kind of their spotty vision almost? Um, and, and if so, like, can you explain what that is? Sure. So a cotton wool spot is an, a, an artery in the retina actually getting injured, a direct um, blockage of an artery 
resulting in sort of an explosion of the tissue around the artery and an explosion of the artery itself, okay? We don't see this as often as the primary result of radiation retinopathy, but we do see it as time goes on. And if you were to look through some of the slides that I showed, basically all of those patients have a cotton wool spot or two. The interesting thing about cotton wool spots is that um, our treatments aren't really directed towards them, right? Um, but they um, but they can cause very significant radiation or very significant vision loss if they happen right in the center of the vision, right? And in that spot, you may notice a very focal blind spot that may actually get better with time uh, or may just stay the same way. Um, so are there, are there exercises to strengthen the eye muscle after brachytherapy plaque surgery? Do you guys know of any kind of like eye therapies for helping kind of rehabilitate the eye when the muscle has been cut to insert the plaque? Um, I actually tell patients to avoid doing stuff like that. Okay. Um, the, the eye is really good at healing itself if it can. And the muscles, you know, the muscles around the eye tend to be, you know, really excellent at doing what they can do um, once they're given the chance to. Most of the, m most of the double vision happens as a result of um, muscular um, swelling and injury to the muscle. That just needs time to get better, and I don't think there's anything that you can do to make it stronger. I don't know if Scott or Peter, if you feel any differently about that. Definitely agree that uh, at the outset, you should leave the eye alone and give it time to heal, um, because we don't want to stress the eye muscle, you know, that you've just reattached by, you know, exercising it too hard. You may loosen up the eye muscle, so just let things heal. Um, once you get to a, and, and I really find it's quite rare that patients have persistent diplopia with the technique that I use to, to reattach the muscle. Usually it's, you know, about two weeks of double vision and it gets better. Some patients it's a few months, but usually it gets better. Um, you know, I think if you're um, still having double vision, it may not be because, uh, uh, because the muscle is weak. It may be because the vision uh, is weak and the brain can actually align the two eyes, um, you know, because the brain is really good at, as, as uh, David said, uh, at, at using the eye muscles to align the two eyes, even if there's been um, some injury to the muscle as a result of your surgery. I'm actually wondering, John, so we still have John Pino in the audience. I wonder, you know, what, what you might recommend in terms of eye muscle exercises um, later, you know, sort of later on after things have healed. This one's working. Here we go. Uh, I agree that there, there's really not any exercises, especially as an adult. That's usually more effective at, at young ages where we have strabismus. But you can use what are called prisms to help align the eyes to create a, a, a single vision again. So... That's, that's what we use uh, in, in the low vision field. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that's just good to know. Like, there are resources to align the double vision if it's persisting longer than it maybe should due to the muscular detachment. Shake it, shake it. Um, check, check the there we go. There we go. I hear you. Hello? Um, I, I may have missed this. I was out of the room for a few minutes. But on a... Um, 
On those rare occasions when you have to re-op on an eye and go back in, for example, a nucleating an eye that's been treated that's painful, um, I've always been impressed at the degree of fibrosis you see. The eye muscles normally reach out and have a one point where they attach. But in the eyes that I've re-opted, the eye muscle appears to be stuck to the whole wall of the eye. And in fact, I was struck with one patient who had persistent diplopia. We ended up enucleating him for other reasons. But um, I had done the surgery on one side of the eye, but the, it was the muscle on the opposite side that was completely fibrosed onto the wall of the eye. And that's why I'm pretty aggressive with steroids. I think that may limit it somewhat. Uh, um, I think our strabismus colleagues, um, on the rare occasion, I've had uh, two or three patients I can think of that had surgery, they'll go in and release all that, those adhesions. And uh, I believe that's uh, probably the major cause of strabismus, if there is. Um, thank you guys, all of you. And the last thing that I have, I wanted to, do we have time for one more? Okay, we do have time for one more. We're going, we're heading into our lunch break. Um, keep in mind, I'm gonna announce some stuff after that, so sit tight for just a sec. Okay, this was a from a virtual. Um, okay, so when is it safe to do a cataract surgery caused by radiation, um, radiation damage from brachytherapy? When is it safe to do that cataract surgery versus when is it not safe or advised, I guess, in some cases? So I think this is, this is actually a great question that, um, that I've changed uh, as, as I've practiced a little bit more. I used to um, firmly wait a year after radiation uh, for cataract surgery and everybody. Now, um, I sort of think that there are other factors that need to go into play. If I can't see the tumor because of the cataract, um, then I'm comfortable taking the cataract out pretty early. Um, and so I think there's probably, it probably could be safer and safer um, because the radiation really should work on the tumor immediately, right? Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know if other people feel differently, but I would say, after that post-op one-month visit, if I really need the cataract out, I'm probably comfortable with that. I guess to kind of clarify that question a little bit more, um, are there any times you leave the cataract? Because, like you said, can you you know you can see the tumor, or, or I guess the better question is is uh, what type of visibility of the tumor do you prefer? Like as, a, as an ocular oncologist, you have to be able to get those, those picture scans that you showed us on the slides? Or is ultrasound okay for you? Do people kind of weigh that differently as ocular oncologists? I'm a little old school in this way. I, I mean, I, I think that actually visualizing the tumor, especially when you're looking at the base, when you're actually visualizing the tumor, you get a much better appreciation of how the tumor is doing than ultrasound. Um, and so... Um, you know, a little bit of variation month to month in, in term, or year to year in terms of how the tumor is doing on ultrasound, to me, I think is a lot less important of how it looks. So what I'm hearing you say is that those colored pictures where you're scanning and you're seeing, those are still important to you because they show the activity level underneath. They may actually be even more important. Okay. So that's, I mean, that's, that's helpful. I feel like that's, that's good information to have. Um, so... Do, you, do we have time to let these guys weigh in for a second? Because I feel like if you guys have a, an opinion there, I'm curious if you're different um, or if you feel the same way. I agree, Dave. I, I, when, if you're having a reoccurrence, it, it'll be very subtle. Mm -hmm. And I think you'll pick it up a lot quicker if you can see it rather than wait for an ultrasound to show it. 
And so for uh, clarification, if the cataract is in the way, you can't see those pictures, right? It's true, although the correct answer is it depends. Everyone's different. Yes, it depends. We certainly have patients where you have no view whatsoever. We do an ultrasound, and year after year, they're good, and they were treated 20 years ago, and they're fine. Uh, so not, not in all cases. It also depends on the vision potential in those cases. If the patient can see light and they'll be improved uh, by cataract surgery, you definitely want to do that. It's usually a decision made earlier in the course, though. Okay. Yeah, I would, I would generally agree Cataract surgery can be performed to improve patient's vision or to improve our visualization of the tumor, both of which are important goals. In rare cases, cataract surgery might actually make the patient's vision worse. Um, if uh, you know, they're bothered by the vision in that eye, and sometimes the cataract is actually helping their brain just tune it out. But in most cases, I think cataract surgery is indicated when there's a visually significant cataract or of a, an opacification of the lens that prevents us from being able to monitor the tumor uh, accurately. Um, in terms of timing, I, my general rule of thumb is six months, but I agree that if you need to do it sooner, it's probably safe. I think it is important to recognize that cataract surgery after plaque brachytherapy is a little bit more complicated than just straightforward cataract surgery in, a, in an otherwise healthy eye, and so I like to work with a cataract surgeon who has experience operating on eyes that have had brachytherapy, so I basically send all of my patients to one person as opposed to just sending them back to whoever is their general ophthalmologist, and I think usually the, um, the general ophthalmologists understand that and don't necessarily, you know, want to operate in, on an unpredictable eye. I think some of the issues that arise in cataract surgery are an increased rate of inflammation and post-operative mm. macular edema. And so it can be helpful to prepare the eye for surgery with a steroid injection prior to surgery or intraoperatively. Um, the other issue is that sometimes the iris, which is um, what forms the pupil um, uh, and needs to be adequately dilated for the cataract surgeon to be able to perform their surgery, sometimes the iris behaves differently after uh, radiation. So it's kind of similar to what the cataract surgeons call uh, intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. So they have some special techniques they can use to control the floppiness of the iris intraoperatively. So I really think if you're going to have cataract surgery after plaque brachytherapy, it's best if you can go to someone who has uh, some experience uh, with this special type of cataract. Okay. Hey, I'm really glad you said that. That because, was such a good answer. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because um, I, as my, my patients in the room know, there, there is a total of two cataract surgeons that I um, feel comfortable sending patients to after uh, radiation. And um, they shouldn't be surprised when they ask me, like, oh, can my doctor back home in Alabama or Kentucky do this? And I say, and I say, eh, I, I may make you have that extra trip. <laughs> well, thank you so much, everybody, um, all of you guys for just last minute impromptu participating. Let's just thank all of our speakers. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, 
leave us a brief review, or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Acure Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.